This is Pulse 95. You're listening to the Life Beats Podcast. Pulse 95. Pulse 95 Live at the Sharjah International Book Fair. Live Beats. Live Beats. It's Shelly Musa. Live from the Expo Center Sharjah. It's Pulse 95. Hello, welcome back to Life Beats. We got a special guest with us in the studio. He's the CEO of the Happiness Research Institute. That's right, he studies happiness. He's also a New York Times best-selling author. He's written several books and reports on happiness. And his latest book is The Art of Making Memories. We're going to be talking all about that. But yes, let's welcome to the studio, Mark Viking. Hello. Thank you. How you been today? Good. Happy, Good. hopefully. Happy, otherwise I get fired. Yeah. So why don't we start? <laughs> um, why don't we start with um, happiness as a term that you study? How would you define happiness to people? I would define happiness as a wide, complex term. So to me, happiness is a dish with many ingredients. It's both feeling um, overall happy about the lives we are living, but it's also experiencing positive emotions on a daily basis. It's also having a sense of purpose and meaning in life. So it's a wide dish we need to break down and look at different components for. And could you elaborate on what those components are? Yeah, so, so it is feeling uh, a sense of purpose. It is feeling a, a sense of pleasure. But I think we need to talk about happiness the same way we talk about, for example, the, the economy. If we talk about uh, the UAE economy, we would break that down into growth, GDP per capita, inflation, unemployment rate. And that gives us a language to talk about how is the UAE economy doing. So that's also what we do with happiness. So we look at overall life satisfaction. We look at what kind of emotions do people experience on a daily basis, both positive and negative ones. And we look at overall uh, sense of purpose with life. Those three components are usually what we uh, focus on. And so when you're looking at all of those components, you often see the Scandinavian countries always, at least in the top five right there, dominating. Why is that when you're looking at happiness worldwide, they seem to come out on top? They are happiness superpowers yeah. <laughs> in, in that sense. But I think you know, it's important to underline that these rankings, for example, like the World Happiness Report, they are based on a national average. So you can call them the happiest in the world. You could also call them the least unhappy in the right. world. But we see there are some patterns that explain why some countries are happier than others. Um, so we can see GDP per capita matters because being without money is a cause of unhappiness. 100%. Once, once you get to a certain threshold, though, additional $100 per month is not going to impact how you feel about okay, your life. So there's kind of like a threshold where that's what matters and then the rest is, right. is a bonus. Obviously, yeah. also healthy life expectancy matters. Being sick is a cause of misery for yourself and, and your family. Then we can see freedom to make life decisions, uh, freedom from corruption, so having good governance. Mm -hmm. uh, so if the money we are paying into the sort of collective pool, is that going through the wrong pockets? It's or, about the trust. Exactly. Always yeah. being channeled into infrastructure, education, healthcare that delivers quality of life for people or, or not. And you can also see generosity matters and social support. So do we have somebody in our lives? that um, we can rely on in, in times of taking care yeah. of and can you talk to about because you, you just mentioned the social aspect in Nordic countries how is social life different from say other places I'm going to throw a random one say Japan um, the way people interact with each other the community feel what is it like in Nordic countries and how does it contribute to their high rankings in the happiness scales well we can see um, that work life balance 
explain uh, some of this. Uh, work-life balance, a good work-life balance, explain why the Nordic countries are doing well. Work-life balance also explain that you know, Danes, Swedes, Norwegians, they have a lot of time outside of work to enjoy spending time with family and friends. And it's actually also something we can see impact, something we call the parental happiness gap. So if we look globally at whether people with kids or without kids are more satisfied with life, we see very different results. So if you take the US, people with kids, uh, so parents, are 12% less happy than people without kids. Ouch! Yeah. So if you take <laughs> Portugal on the other end of the scale, you have parents there, people with kids, are 8% happier than people without kids. Now, is that because the Portuguese are nicer than the American kids? Probably not. But we can see Portugal, Spain, parents are happier. And I think that's because in Portugal and Spain, they are better at incorporating the grandparent generation in bringing up the kids. It takes a village, right? It takes a village, exactly. And we can also see Norway and Sweden, parents are also happier than people without kids. And that's because there are really good family-friendly policies in those countries. Subsidized childcare, relatively good work-life balance conditions. If your kid is sick, you have the right to take the day off work and so on. So in a perfect world, I think we need, you know, Norwegian family policies and Portuguese grandparents. Yes, exactly. (laughs) But, you know, uh, we want to know about you specifically. What on earth made you want to start the Happiness Institute and study <laughs> happiness as a career for your entire life? What is this? Where did it come from? I, I mean, I think it's a fascinating subject. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a subject you can have a conversation with everybody about. Um, it's also a subject that has been going on for thousands of years. I mean, Aristotle, 2,000 years ago, he tried to solve some of the same questions I try to solve today. Uh, But uh, I I got the idea for the Happiness Research Institute back in 2012 when the UN published the first World Happiness Report and when different governments, they were starting to measure well-being and quality of life Mm -hmm. as a new measure of progress. And I thought there should be somebody in Denmark trying to pool all the knowledge there is. Why is Denmark doing well in these happiness rankings? Why is it that some people are happier than others? There should be somebody studying that. And then I thought, maybe I should study (laughs) that. And I just couldn't let go of the thought, uh, but I also thought it was a little bit crazy to start something as a happiness research institute. And this was 2012 in the wake of the financial crisis. Uh, But then on on the personal level, what happened was I had a mentor at the company I was working for who I really looked up to, uh, both uh, personally and, and, and professionally. And I thought, I want to be him in 15 years. And unfortunately, he got very ill and uh, eventually died when he was 49. And many years ago, my own mother had also died when she was 49. So I just started to reflect on life and sort of what do we spend our time doing? And what if I only live to see 49? What am I, what am I spending my next 15 years doing? And I thought I can continue with this job I have and it's fine and it's well paid and it's stable, but I'm not super passionate about it. Or I can try and create this thing that might be a risky venture, but I'm just feeling really passionate about it. So I started out with um, what I thought was a good idea and a bad laptop. And, and I can see already now that's going to be the best decision that I'm going to make in my career. And, and that's it. I, I know it sounds like a magical place, the Happiness Research Institute, and people imagine we have an office full of puppies and, and ice unicorns. cream and chocolate cake. Yep. <laughs> and, but, but we are nine people trying to look at happiness from a scientific perspective. I mean, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up because 
a lot of us wonder about that in our jobs. You know, we, we wonder, am I really going to be happier in a job that maybe pays less, but that I'm super passionate about, or do I stay in this job? And that's why you hear a lot about a lot of people, you know, taking that leap of faith right. and doing something that they really love. So in your research, what have you found around that kind of thing, you know, in terms of uh, job satisfaction and happiness? Yeah, so, so when we look at job satisfaction and also life satisfaction, Um, at a population level. For instance, in Denmark, we see the biggest factor that drives job satisfaction is a sense of purpose and meaning. So the organization I'm working for, are we making the world a better place? And also internally in the organization, the function I have, does it make sense or am I just you know, pushing papers around? Yeah. So that seems to, seems to be the, the, the biggest driver of, of job satisfaction. At a, at a bigger scale or sort of a, a sort of going between for example being in a regular employment to to self-employment we can also see on average self-employed are happier in part because they're more optimistic you know being an entrepreneur being self-employed also means often being you know having high level of self-esteem and having a high level of optimism but we can also see in some countries going from regular employment to self-employment also gives a boost in 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 job satisfaction gives a sense of purpose gives a sense of, of freedom autonomy um, and 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 these are some of the best studies where we follow people over time yeah. uh, and and we like those studies because that gives us insight in what are the causes and what are the effects in some of these things because for instance if we just looked at uh, people who are married happier we could say yes people who are married are happier but is that because we become happy from marriage Or is it the other way around that people who are happy, optimistic, they have an easier time attracting a partner? So in the UK, in Germany, they followed a lot of people over time. And there you can start to see if you follow 10,000 people over 10 years, perhaps 1,100 people get married. And then you see who were those people in the beginning of the study and what happened in year zero, year one, year two, when those people got married. And we can actually see both things are true. Yes, there is a positive impact on happiness from marriage. It's sort of, we adapt to marriage over time. So there's a boost in the beginning of the marriage and then we sort of <laughs> adapt to marriage. Uh, but those people are also actually happier in the beginning of the study. It's, incre- it's incredible though, the work that you guys do because there's so many countries around the world and, and so many angles and aspects to people's well-being to study and keep track of. One aspect in particular that I'm interested in discussing with you is the sense of desire because you touched on meaning and purpose. and. From my personal experience and the experience of others around me, we're always hungry. We always want more things. We want right. more money. We want more success. We want a better relationship. We want a better work, uh, job. How do these expectations, these goals, interact with one's sense of well-being? And would it help for people to try to suppress those desires, maybe akin to like a Buddhist monk or something? I, I know <laughs> I, I touched upon so many things here, but maybe if you could comment on that yeah. a little bit. I think it was a Roman emperor, Marcus Aurelius, who said, you know, happiness is not having many possessions, but having few wants, yeah. few desires. And, I mean, ambition is great. You know, it pushes us forward as a human race. You know, we are the only species that will look at a red planet in the distant <laughs> sky and think, how do we get up there? Um, but it might also be something that undermines our happiness because... The trouble with ambition is that you can always raise the bar. Yes. The trouble with money is that there's always a higher number. Mm. Um, so 
in happiness research, we see something we call the hedonic treadmill, which is the mechanism that we have as humans, meaning that we are really good at constantly raising the bar for what we feel we need in order to be happy. So you finish university and then you want that job. And then you get that job if you're lucky. And then after six months, 12 months, 18 months, you think, I could do my supervisor's job. Now I want that job. I want that promotion. I want that call office. And then you get there and then you start to see something else that you want. So, so I think we should just embrace that. And unfortunately, sorry to be a, a happiness researcher that sort of shatters your <laughs> illusions, but there is no one accomplishment that is going to make you forever happy. You're always going to raise the bar. You're always going to want more. And uh, I think that is good reason just to try and enjoy the journey and not focus so much on the destination. It is very much a human nature, but we're going to come back in just a moment, Mike. And I want to ask you about the dark side, about the power of being unhappy and where that fits in with everything that you talk about. That's next here on Life Feats on Pulse 95. This is Pulse 95. 95. Keeping it local. Keeping it local. All day, every day. Pulse 95. Heart of Shasha. Pulse 95 Live at the Sharjah International Book Fair. Live Beats, Live Beats with Sally Musa. Live from the Expo Center Sharjah. It's Pulse 95. Yes, live with us here in the studio at the Sharjah International Book Fair is best selling author Mike Viking. He's the man that's all about happiness, but Mike, we need to ask you because. You know, th- there is a reason why we do have unhappiness in our lives. There's a power to being unhappy and it's important. So where does that fit in with all of your research? Because doesn't being unhappy drive us to be better and to do better? Yes, <laughs> but I think, I think it also, unhappiness also teaches us about happiness. We experience happiness because we also have been unhappy from time to time. Yeah. And I think it's also important for me as a happiness researcher to say that unhappiness is also part of life. You know, in every human life, there's going to be a heartbreak, there's going to be failure, there's going to be stress, there's going to be worry, there's going to be anxiety. Unhappiness, that is also part of the human experience. So we shouldn't skip that. That's there for a reason. Uh, what, What we're about is let's figure out the best way we can create good conditions for good lives how to create better workplaces how to create better cities so we don't have to spend two hours commuting uh back and front and how do we how do we create better policies how do we create um better habits and 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 better countries basically Mm -hmm. and we'll talk about uh your latest book the art of making memories came out september this year can you tell us a little bit about the science of memories and how we can use that and harness that power to feel happier Yeah, so we can see that um, people who are able to retrieve happy memories, people who are able to form a positive narrative about their past, are also happier overall. So my work is about understanding why are some people happier than others and how do we improve quality of life. And I can see our memory is part of the answer for both questions. So the book is about which strategies, which tools can we use to be better at creating memorable moments and retrieving happy moments in the future. And I think, I think, listen, I think we're all trying to create unforgettable lives. I think we would all like for our kids to look back at their childhoods and think of happy times. And 
we can actually apply really, really simple things to make that happen. And I'll give you a, the simplest example uh, of, of a tool that you can use. So recently I spoke to a, a Polish woman who I read the book and she was reminded of a time when she was about eight and she's having dinner with her mom and her sister and they're having a good time, they're laughing, they're feeling happy. And then her mother says to them, I hope you remember this moment. And here we are, 30 years later, she still remembers that moment because her mother made her pay attention to it. Now, it's a super powerful tool. It can also, of course, be overused. Because uh, yeah. if you every time you sit down with your friends or your kids say, I hope you remember this moment, <laughs> they might tell you to shut up eventually, yes. right? Yeah. But used every once in a while, it brings attention to the moment and that makes it, uh, uh, gives it a better chance to be transferred to your long-term memory. But we can also see something like having first experiences are more likely to be memorable. So there's a reason why a lot of us feel that time seems to speed up as we get older. And when we ask people who are 80 or 100 years old about their memories, about their life story, we can see there's a huge share of their memories between the age 15 to 30. That's actually something called the reminiscence bump. Uh, and we have so many memories from those years because those are our formative years. We have a lot of first experiences at uh, that time. So uh, first kiss, uh, first apartment, first job, first car, and so on. Whereas at my age, 41, first experiences are just rarer. Yeah. But one of the tricks then is let's try and seek out new experiences. Um, of course, it can be going to a new place we haven't been before, but it can also be a new experience in a gastronomical sense. So trying out dishes, trying out food uh, ingredients we haven't tried before. Yeah, sensory experiences. Yes. You know, those are the ones that you kind of remember the most, right? Right. And we experience the world through our senses. We also remember our memories through our senses. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure all of us are familiar with, you know, you hear a song or you taste something yeah. or you smell something and then you're instantly transported back to that time. I mean, you hear a song you heard in high school and then instantly you're 16 again, right? 100%. Um, so we can also harness the power of the five senses to retrieve happy memories or to retrieve happy memories. So that is something that uh, Andy Warhol, the uh, pop artist, uh, he, he tried to do. So what he would do, he would wear the same perfume for three months and then never wear that perfume again. And that meant over time he had created this museum of scent or museum of memories. So he could say, okay, now I want to go back and visit the spring of 1982. That's incredible. And then take a whiff of that perfume and then be transported back in time. So building in different senses when we are, are feeling happy, that's uh, giving us better odds of remembering that in the future. I've read that the brain is like a muscle and if you're trying to remember things, it's sort of something that you have to work out constantly. Could you talk about, because I think the, the way people perceive memories, it's as if you have a cabinet where you just take right. things out and you could use them at any moment. But there's more that goes into it. It's more of a recreation, isn't it? It is. It is. I mean, our memories are not stored in one place in your brain in a perfect condition. So when you remember something, your brain will assemble that memory from different parts of the brain. So what did it sound like? What did it look like? What did it smell like? How did I feel about the whole thing? And then the scene, the experience in it is recreated in your brain. Um, and the more you think of something, the more those connections in your brain are strengthened. So you're right, in that sense, it is like a muscle. The more you think of something, a memory, the more you talk about a certain memory with your friends and family. Remember that time we went to the water park and you fell off the slide? 
you know, the more likely that is going to be stored in your long-term memory. So, so the more you talk about your happy memories, the more likely you are to remember them uh, in the future. But our memory is also a little bit of an artist because when it reassembles the experience, it can also add stuff that didn't happen at the we time. We embellish. Yes, and we have false memories. Um, and it's also sometimes why we fight over things. So um, when we ask couples, how big a share of the household chores do you do? How big a share of the cooking? How big a share of the shopping? How big a share of the planning do you do? And we add those numbers up. You know, I do 60%, you do 70% it always add up to more than 100%, right? <laughs> uh, and in, in part... It's is, it, is it worse for men or women? Be I honest. mean, I think, I think we see that men admit that women still do a far bigger share of the, the household job, the uh, household work than, than 50%. But it's, it's always more than 100%. Um, um, in part, we, 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 we have these uh, false memories because we remember our own struggles. So I remember when I had to do the shopping because I had to go to different supermarkets to get all the stuff we needed. Yeah. You know, I picked the wrong line in the checkout, so I had to wait for like 20, 10 minutes and I packed all the stuff in one bag instead of having the, the heavy stuff in two bags and I go home and I store it in the fridge. So if, if Helena, uh, my, my partner, has uh, done the shopping uh, and she comes home with the stuff, my experience is just opening the fridge and thinking, oh, great, we got milk, right? So it's it's a very different experience. It's a less vivid experience. It's a less rich experience than, than when I do the show. At what impact? Because a lot of us now use social media to create and store those memories that we have. So what kind of an impact does that have on our actual memory-making process? Yeah, I think, I think our phones can be used for good and for bad. Yeah. I think the bad is what we talked about earlier, that it can undermine our attention. If we're too much on our phones, we don't actually experience what is going on around us. Um, and we can see attention is the very foundation of, of making memories. But perhaps we can also use them to strengthen our memory. So I'm sure you guys, your, your phones are on the table there. I'm yeah. sure you have a thousands and thousands of photos on your phone. Oh, oh yeah. But back in the 80s when I was growing up, we used to have old school photo albums, which you actually look through. Big, chunky right, And ones. you would bring them out and yeah. talk about them as a family. We don't do that the same way today with our phones. And we don't really scroll through those 2,000 photos you took uh, <laughs> yes. when, when that weekend you went somewhere. So, so in the book, I, I come up with the suggestion of curating the happy hundred. So once a year, uh, could be you know, just before New Year's, uh, you know, as a family or do it by yourself, take out your phone and then go through those photos and pick the 10, 50, 100 happiest moments from the past year and get those photos printed out and put it in an old school photo album. And I think, especially if you have kids, it's a really fun exercise because you get insight in what did they actually think were the happiest, uh, funnest right. uh, moments this year. Right, they, they don't get lost in the phone, exactly. in the digital space. Right. Well, uh, you've got your books, uh, The Little Book of Huga, The Little Book of Luca, and The Art of Making Memories. Why don't you make that in Danish <laughs> as well? What is it in Danish? So the word for, uh, for our personal memories in Danish is so I think that's the explanation yeah. also that's why, why. I'm yeah so you have to sort of swallow part of your tongue <laughs> and then just forget the end of the word yeah. well you yeah. are giving a session tomorrow <laughs> night which we are super excited about uh, Mike Viking uh, this is going to be happening at uh, 7 15 
tomorrow night. This is at Discussion Forum 2, Happiness and Life. We are so excited for it. Everybody needs to make sure that they get your books as well. You're going to be talking about all of this and so much more. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. That's Mike Viking, ladies and gentlemen. And we are going to be back again with you tomorrow from 10 a.m. live from the Sharjah International Book Fair. That's it from me, Sally. And me, Ahmed Dawood. See you next time. See you tomorrow. This is Pulse 95. Tune in live every weekday from 10 a.m.